Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Hi, thank you for downloading the podcast. You know there's an awful lot of them out there. There's a humongous number of podcasts out there, so the fact that you have chosen this one, well, it gladdens my heart. Really appreciate it. I hope we can make it worth your while this week with the topic that we're going to be discussing. It's a topic that's dear to my heart and has been uppermost in my mind of late, and I'll explain that in just a moment. At one point, with all of the work that I was doing, I actually earned gold elite status with the Star Alliance. That's how bad it was, all the flying that I was doing around the world. I don't do nearly as much now, and I'm quite pleased about that. In my time as a flyer, I've experienced a range of customer service quality. Once I even went to an airport, here in New Zealand it was actually, and when I checked in, the airline person behind the counter said, how can we best help? It was a very rare experience. There was somebody who was not making any kind of assumptions about my needs, but was listening for me to articulate them myself. What a novel concept. By contrast, I have had a number of other experiences, many of them sadly in the United States. I have been thrust into wheelchairs against my will. It's a bit of a frustrating experience when you might have just come off, say, a 13-hour flight from New Zealand, and you wouldn't actually mind a bit of a walk uh, to get to your next terminal, but you get thrust into these wheelchairs because people seem to think that if you can't see, of course you can't walk. I have had people tell me that there are regulations that exist that clearly do not, and often flying can be a very stressful experience. Now, the bottom line is that our money is as good as anyone else's. And when we pay to be on an airline, we are entitled to be treated with dignity and the paying customers that we are, worthy of respect and quality customer service. We are going to be learning shortly about a customer service experience that can only be described as hideous. It occurred to somebody who is a very frequent flyer and a competent guide dog user. We'll be speaking with Sue Martin about her experience with American Airlines. We will also then speak with Penny Reader, who is the president of the ACB Guide Dog affiliate, Guide Dog Users Incorporated, about whether this experience that Sue has had is typical. And this is part of a two-parter, because I'm interested in your experiences, not just with airlines. I think airlines will be the dominant topic of conversation. But I'm also interested in your thoughts on public transportation generally, if you catch a lot of trains and buses, particularly long-distance ones, where there might need to be some sort of accommodation made. What has your experience been like? So you can share your experiences in two ways. We, of course, always welcome your feedback on this podcast, and you can drop us an email. You can write something down in the good old-fashioned way that we do with email, or you might like to use your smartphone or your PC and record an audio clip. Either way, the email address to get it to me is theblindside at mosen.org. That's the blind side all joined together, at mosen, M-O-S-E-N, dot org. The second and much more communicative interactive way is that we are going to be talking about public transportation options on the Mushroom FM call-in show that Bonnie Mosen and I host on a Thursday night Eastern time called A Cuppa at the Mosens. If we get sufficient interesting responses to this question about airlines, how to deal with them, experiences that you've had, whether you've made any complaints, and if so, were they resolved to your satisfaction? We may well do a second podcast on this subject and play highlights from that call-in show on next week's podcast. But we would love to get your thoughts on this call-in show. To participate, you need to be listening to Mushroom FM at www.mushroomfm.com. You can look for it also in all the apps like TuneIn and OOTunes. It's on the Victor Reader stream by virtue of it being in the OOTunes library as well. And uh, the show is on at 9 p.m. on a Thursday night. There are call-in numbers all around the world, so it's easy to participate. And if you'd like to prepare for that, you can find all the details about the show at mushroomfm.com slash kappa. That's mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A. I really want to hear your experiences with airlines. This is actually uppermost in my mind even before I learned of Sue Martin's recent horror show experience. 
because we had an experience last week that was nowhere near as intrusive as Sue's, but it was a difficult experience. The reason why we didn't have a podcast last week is that in the early hours of last Monday morning, my father died and I have been spending the last week with family and organizing the funeral with them and various things that, of course, have to go on at a time like this. I went to an airline when we knew the date of the funeral and therefore when we could return to home and to work so that I could book a return fare. Now, this airline is a low-budget airline in New Zealand called Jetstar, and I don't normally fly them if I can help it, except that since we were booking airfares so close to departure, the price difference between what my airline of choice in New Zealand, in New Zealand was charging, and they're a great international carrier as well, and what these guys, Jetstar, was charging was very significant indeed. Really, it was like well over 50% less to fly with them. So I went on the website, and I consider myself a pretty good user of the web, and I got to the screen all the way through. It was a bit difficult to navigate, but I finally did get to the screen the second to last one before you hand over your credit card details, where they asked if there were any special requirements. And I wanted to say that my wife was traveling with a guide dog and that I would be traveling with a white cane. And while there is some debate about this, I think it is a reasonable courtesy to tell an airline that you'll be bringing a guide dog on board. We may well have that debate when we do the call-in show, or you may have a view on that that you want to express by way of email to this podcast. But anyway, I don't have any difficulty with letting the airline know this. Except that the web page was inaccessible. <laughs> the, the, the very web page that asks, do you have a disability and do you need assistance, was the one page I could not get past. I mean, I could leave it blank and then call the call center. But if I'm going to do that, I may as well complete the whole thing via the call center, which is what I eventually did. There was just no way I could get past this page with a screen reader. And so I called the airline and I found the flight that we wanted and we were in the process of making the booking. And I said that I was blind with a cane and that my wife would be traveling with a guide dog. You know, the the term guide dog in New Zealand is a very well-known term and people generally know what it means, especially if they're in the service industry and they have a business knowing what it means. This operator had no idea what a guide dog was. Finally, she said, do you mean it's a service animal? And I said, yes, that's correct. She's blind and therefore has a guide dog. And she finally asked me to spell guide dog. Absolutely remarkable stuff. Um, So in the end, I disconnected the call and decided that it might be better to call back. So Bonnie called back because, you know, I think we have to think about the reasons why some people are traveling. If you're traveling for business, you might have a bit of stress relating to a meeting you're going to or whatever. If you're traveling because you're grieving and you've got a family bereavement, it can be a very stressful thing to have to go through this stuff. So Bonnie very kindly decided to make the call because I was kind of uh, short-fused at my wit's end, really. And she got exactly the same issue with a different operator that they did not know what a guide dog was. I just found this absolutely remarkable. Now, when we got to the airport with this carrier... They were insistent that Bonnie, who has a dog, bear in mind, needed to get on the plane, which had a, a pretty simple flight of steps, by taking a, a kind of a chairlift thing up to the top of the aircraft. And Bonnie said very politely, she's very polite. I mean, I wish I had all her reasonableness, but uh, she very politely said that she didn't need it. She was perfectly able to walk and climb stairs. Uh, they said, well, it's procedure, it's policy that people with disabilities have to use this lift. And Bonnie just said, well, you know, for one thing, how's the guide dog going to get on with this lift thing? And she held her ground and she went up to uh, the aircraft and, of course, ascended the stairs without incident. But, you know, these two things with this one trip, particularly when you're dealing with a grieving situation, it's stress that we don't need and it's unnecessary. If there's appropriate training in place, this kind of stuff should not be happening. We're in 2017 and yet still we go to the airport, many of us, with a knot in our stomachs 
wondering what sort of ignorance we have to try and transcend today. And of course, we're expected to transcend this ignorance with good grace and good humor. Uh, Even though our dignity is being trampled all over the place, we're being lied to about regulations that do not exist. And yet we are uh, supposed to grin and bear it and at least try to stay polite because, of course, If you dare to use your call, somebody's going to call you belligerent and they've got the right to kick you off the plane and all this sort of thing. It goes on a lot. Now, before we talk with Sue Martin about her extraordinary experience with American Airlines, I have a web page in front of me and I'm going to put the web page in the show notes for this podcast. And I want to thank the National Federation of the Blind's social media team for tweeting a link to this. I thought the timing was great just as we were uh, putting this podcast together. This webpage is all about the Air Carrier Access Act. And this is the act that you need to know about if you are in the United States and take any flights there, or even if you are going to the United States, because the Air Carrier Access Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability in air travel. The Department of Transportation has a rule defining the rights of passengers and the obligations of airlines under this law. This rule applies to all flights of U.S. airlines and to flights to or from the United States by foreign airlines. Now, there's a lot on this web page, but I just want to highlight some of the things that I think are particularly relevant to blind people and particularly relevant to the interview that we're about to do with um, Sue Martin. Airlines may not refuse transportation to people on the basis of disability. Airlines may exclude anyone from a flight if carrying the person would be inimical to the safety of the flight. We'll talk about that with Sue in a minute. If a carrier excludes a person with a disability on safety grounds, the carrier must provide a written explanation of the decision. Airlines may not require advance notice that a person with a disability is traveling. Air carriers may require up to 48 hours advance notice of certain accommodations that require preparation time. For example, respiratory hookup, transportation of children, electric wheelchairs on an aircraft with less than 60 seats. Airlines may not limit the number of persons with disabilities on a flight. So if you're heading off to a blindness convention or something like CSUN, there is no limit to the number of people with disabilities that can be on the one flight. Airlines may not require a person with a disability to travel with another person, except in certain limited circumstances where the rule permits the airline to require a safety assistant. If a passenger with a disability and the airline disagree about the need for a safety assistant, the airline can require the assistant but cannot charge for the transportation of the assistant. Airlines may not keep anyone out of a specific seat on the basis of disability or require anyone to sit in a particular seat on the basis of disability except to comply with FAA or foreign government safety requirements. FAA's rules on exit row seating says that airlines may place in exit rows only persons who can perform a series of functions necessary in an emergency evacuation. Now, I do want to talk about this one. Obviously, the exit row seating is a a bit of a controversial subject with some, and you may well want to comment on that. I'll, I'll skip that for this particular discussion. What I do want to highlight is this myth that you continually hear from so many airlines that if you are traveling with a guide dog, you are required to sit in a bulkhead seat. You are not. There is no requirement that an airline must put you in a bulkhead seat if you have a guide dog. And if you, as a guide dog handler, choose to be in a bulkhead seat, then fine, request it. But some guide dog handlers do not want to be in a bulkhead seat for their particular requirements, for the way they work with the dog, where they tuck the dog under the seat in front. A bulkhead seat is not always the most appropriate option. They cannot force you by virtue of your guide dog to be in a bulkhead seat. If they tell you that that's the case, they are incorrect at best, deliberately misinforming you at worst, and you need to be prepared to quote the appropriate regulation uh, to uh, correct them. Airlines are required 
to provide assistance with boarding, deplaning, and making connections. I know that there are some who don't want that assistance. I'll talk with Penny Reader a bit about that in a moment, and you may have some comments about your own experience. I think the critical thing here, though, is that they are required to provide it if you need it, and many people feel that they do. It shouldn't be forced, of course, on people who feel that they don't. Assistance within the cabin is also required, but not extensive personal services. Training is required for airline and contractor personnel who deal with the travelling public. Hmm. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder how often that happens. Airlines must make available specially trained complaints resolution officials to respond to complaints from passengers and must also respond to written complaints. A DOT, Department of Transportation, enforcement mechanism is also available. Airlines must obtain an assurance of compliance from contractors who provide services to passengers. Now, you may obtain an accessible electronic copy of 14 CFR Part 382, or you can call the Department of Transportation, and that number is 202-366-2220. That's 202-366-2220, and you can request a copy that way. I will provide a link to this webpage in the show notes so that you can explore this further. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on the blind side. On March the 1st, Sue Martin was travelling with her husband Jim and seeing eye dog Quan from Bangor, Maine, all the way out to the CSUN Technology Conference in San Diego, where she was to be giving a presentation. Now, the trip comprised three flights. The first, to Reagan National, was the uneventful kind of flight that Sue has come to expect when travelling with guide dogs for over 30 years. It was the second leg of the journey, American Airlines Flight 327, departing Reagan National and going to Dallas, Texas, where she says she was subjected to so many violations of the Air Carrier Access Act that actually, as an interviewer, it's overwhelming almost for me to try and document them all, but we're going to have a go. Sue Martin joins me on the phone now from Maine. Sue, welcome to The Blind Side. Good to have you here. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be here. Let's start at the very beginning. When you made the reservation for this flight, did you specify at the time of booking that you were a blind person traveling with a seeing eye dog? Was that in the record? It was not. It's not a requirement, is it? You don't have to do that. No, I don't. And I've never done it before. In 30 years, um, it's apparently clear to every other crew in the world that when a person approaches with a dog wearing a harness, a guiding harness that has the seeing eye incorporated, stamped on the back strap, the harness handle, the leash, and engraved in a plate on the collar of the dog, it's pretty um, clear, at least to the rest of the aviation industry, that the person on the other end of the harness is blind. And the Air Carrier Access Act requires those involved in dealing with the travelling public to have received training. So it's not unreasonable for you to expect that uh, somebody dealing with travelling, particularly flight crew, would understand the Seeing Eye logo and what that means in terms of your needs and your, your legitimacy as a user of a certified service animal. Very reasonable, yes. You were assigned bulkhead seats, and I take it you got your three boarding passes at the time that you checked in in Maine. Were all of those bulkhead seats? No. It depends on the flight, apparently. We did not get our seat assignments at Reagan National until we actually got to the gate. And the person behind the desk said, oh, look, we have bulkhead seats. We'll put you in bulkhead. And I kind of thought, oh, this could be bad. But there are bulkhead rows that do have more room. So I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be okay. Let's just get on the plane. Because many, many times I have been put in bulkhead, found insufficient space, 
and have been politely and successfully reseated in a regular row where I can put my dog under the seat in front of me. Um, apparently, American Airlines has changed the rules also about pre-boarding because they did not offer to let me pre-board or anybody pre-board with, you know, that might take a little bit longer. And as I boarded the plane in Bangor, I said, what happened with pre-boarding if you have a, a legitimate need to take a little bit more time to get settled? And the gate agent said, oh, we don't do that anymore. And I thought, well, okay. <laughs> we also were not offered to be pre-boarded at Reagan National but we were among the first people to go down the jetway. But when you pre-board, they hold the rest of the passengers until you get settled, and that did not happen this time. Now, my so, understanding is that that would also be a violation of the Air Carrier Access Act, which actually requires, I believe, the airline to provide pre-boarding when it's required, and there also seems to be a myth perpetrated by a lot of airlines. This is this is commonplace and not unique to American, where personnel seem to think they must have been told by someone that all guide dog handlers have to sit in a bulkhead seat. And the uh, Air Carrier Access Act is very specific about this too. It says that you cannot require somebody to be in a specific seat by virtue of their disability. That's correct. Um, I believe the um, pre-boarding thing has changed and you must request it now. I didn't know that. I mean, how am I supposed to know there's a change in the Air Carrier Access Act? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, um, we when I got to the bulkhead row and saw the configuration, I knew it was going to be a problem. But because they did not offer nor allow me to pre-board, I then had the whole rest of the passengers behind me. So um, I tried to make the best I could of the situation, thinking that when the plane was boarded, then a flight attendant would clearly see that there wasn't enough room, and then they would reseat me. But I had to get myself and my dog out of the way so the rest of the plane could board. So I took off his harness, spun him around, and tried my best to back him into about 12 inches of space between the fronts of the seats and the bulkhead wall. In the process, I fell and injured my hip on the armrest of the seat. So now I'm frustrated and in pain, and I waited until there was a lull in the onslaught of passengers, and I trailed the overhead bin with my right hand just to maintain my orientation to get to where the flight attendants were, and I said, the bulkhead row does not have adequate room for my dog. And I have just fallen in the process of trying to get the dog in the inadequate space and injured my hip. Um, can I please be reseated? No. You were obviously in some discomfort. Is it possible that the manner in which you asked to be reseated could in any way be described as belligerent or confrontational or threatening in any way at all? Um. I suppose it could, and that's why I said I have just fallen and injured my hip. I'm in pain, and there is not enough room. Can I be reseated? I, I tried to be very clear that if there was any agitation in my voice, it was there not because I was being belligerent, but because I was in pain. But the response from the crew was a blatant lie. 
the response was, no, you have to sit in the bulkhead row. It's a rule. And as you just stated, it is, there is no such rule. It specifically states in the Air Carrier Access Act that an airline cannot force a disabled traveler with a service animal to sit in a specific row. And I'm going to read that language because I have it in front of me now, actually. And it says here, and I'm reading directly, if a service animal cannot be accommodated at the seat location of the passenger with a disability who is using the animal, you must. Now, you know, legal language is very precise. And when they use the word must in a law, they mean must. You must offer the passenger the opportunity to move the animal to another seat location if present on the aircraft where the animal can be accommodated. So there's absolutely no wiggle room at all on this. No. First, they lied. And then I said, well, okay, can I temporarily sit in the row behind the bulkhead row just so I can get myself and my dog out of the way during the boarding process. And this is when they started getting rude. Um, they lied again, and they said, no, it's illegal for you to sit in another passenger's seat, even temporarily. And I said, okay, what would it take for me to get reseated? They said, you'll have to go back in the terminal. So they're telling a blind woman that she has to navigate with her dog against the onslaught of traffic of an entire passenger load coming down the jetway. They, they wouldn't even do me the courtesy of offering to escort me. So I trailed the overhead bin back to the bulkhead wall, harnessed my dog, and told my husband that they wouldn't reseat me, even temporarily, and that I had to go back to the terminal if we were going to be reseated. So I harnessed Quan, directed him out of the plane, and bless his heart, he, he found, fortunately, most of the passengers were on the left side of the jetway. And just like he had done this a million times in his life, he hugged the right wall and navigated me back up the jetway. And when I got in the terminal, I directed him left and forward because that's the place I remember showing my boarding pass to the gate agent. And I said, excuse me, can you help me? And the gate agent said, yes, what do you want? And I said, there is not room in the bulkhead row for my dog. Can I either be reseated or is there space in first class? And that person said, it's a rule you have to sit in the bulkhead rule, and it's a rule that no dogs are allowed in first class. Were you offering to buy a first class seat at this point to resolve the situation, or were you suggesting that if the only place to go was first class that provided sufficient room, then the airline should accommodate you? They didn't let me get that far, Jonathan. I would have been happy to pay for a first-class seat, but they lied and shut me down before the discussion could even happen. When you went back on the aircraft, you were offered a seat in first class by a passenger who was willing to give up that seat. What I'm not clear about is how did the passenger in first class who made that generous offer to you know at this point that there was an issue um, worthy of him making that sacrifice? Um, it wasn't a big plane, and he was maybe just three rows from where I had had the discussions with the crew. So I'm, I'm certain that everybody in first class heard the whole discussion. And 
Were you getting any kind of support? Could you tell the mood of the other passengers? Was there any sort of response from them as this was playing out? Not that I could perceive, um, apart from the fact that this generous man recognized what the problem was and offered to fix it. When he made the offer, I, I, I was like, are you sure? <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I've, I've done this before. It happens all the time. I'll be happy to, to switch seats with you. So I commanded Quan forward and told Jim what the man had offered to let me do. And Jim said, well, have fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, then I, I settled in, in the seat took Juan's harness off and had been quietly and peacefully chatting with the woman beside me for 10 minutes when an unknown person appeared in the aisle and said, Ms. Martin, please come out in the jetway. He didn't identify himself. He didn't even say he worked for the airline. Right, and you wouldn't have been able to see whether he had any kind of uniform or identifying insignia of any kind. Right, and I said, why do you want me to come out in the jetway? He said, I don't want to have a personal conversation in a public place, and he walked away. So I harnessed Quan again, directed him to the door of the plane, but before leaving the plane, I said, could you please tell me who you are? And the man identified himself as a supervisor. Um, Jim said his badge said manager, but he identified himself to me as a supervisor. So I commanded Quan forward, and the supervisor said, the crew has decided that you have to leave the flight. And I said, why do I have to leave the flight? And he said, the crew has decided that you, your presence on this plane is unsafe. You, you have rendered, you are um, a threat to aviation security for this flight. Did he actually use that term, a threat to aviation security? I'm pretty sure I'm remembering that right. I'm, I may not be remembering that exactly right, but um, but he, whatever words he used, I, my presence on that flight, in the crew's opinion, rendered the flight unsafe to leave the ground. And and are you clear as to whether that's some sort of reflection on what they perceive to be your behaviour on the flight, or was it to do with the size of Quan, or simply the fact that you were trying to insist upon the accommodations that you're legally entitled to? I mean, what what's the basis for such a serious claim like that? Well, the the basis absolutely could not have been Quan because he was perfectly behaved through all everything that happened. He was perfect, which is pretty good for a three-year-old dog that's been with me for one year. I think the basis is that in advocating for my needs and rights, as I have done for over 30 years, I suddenly ran into a crew that chose to see my behavior as dangerous. So um, when he said that I, the crew had decided that I, um, that my presence on the, the plane was unsafe, I said, and why exactly is that? And he said, American Airlines knows all about emotional support animals. At which point I interrupted him and said, why are we talking about emotional support animals? I am blind and my dog is a guide dog. And he went absolutely silent. And, I mean, I thought that explaining that was, was all I had to do. So I commanded Quan back on the plane and sat down. 
And five minutes later, another man approached the seat and told me I had to leave. According to Jim, he was a big man. <laughs> um, did he identify his role at no, all? No, he did not. Mm. He did not. He did not. And he just stood there repeating over and over again, this flight cannot leave the gate if you are on it. You have to get off the plane. And since in over 30 years, I've never had a problem. I did not know that at the beginning of, of any sign of trouble, I should have asked for a complaints resolution official. I know it now, but I, I should have completely quit interacting with the crew and asked for a complaints resolution official. But not only that, you are actually supposed to be advised of your rights to ask for one. I mean, when there is a dispute over accommodation, it is their legal requirement to tell you that you have the right to one. Exactly. So finally, I, I felt so shamed, so humiliated, and so helpless in front of this plane full of people that I stood up, re-harnessed my dog, and after I buckled the harness, Jonathan... When I stood up and the full import of getting kicked off an airplane hit me, I almost cried. Nothing makes me cry, but tears came to my eyes. And then I thought, no, I'm not going to let these bullies do this to me. I'm not going to show weakness to these rude arrogant, lying people. So I stood there and took a few deep breaths, and I commanded Quan forward to the bulkhead row, and I said, Jim, they're kicking me off the plane. So, of course, Jim came with me, and as Jim walked by the cockpit, he asked the pilot, why he was kicking me off the plane. And the pilot's response, I'll have to ask Jim again, but the pilot's response was either, okay, because I said so. Customer service at its best, right? I, I suppose so. Although, you know, we, we know that pilots and, and the captains of ships and things have extraordinary powers over their vessel and nobody disputes that. I suppose what, what, what really troubles me is just this repeated series of violations of your rights, which really began when you requested, uh, as is your legal right to do under the Air Carrier Access Act, a receipt. And that really should have been the, the end of the matter. And, of course, even when we get to this point in the story, Sue, it's not the end of the matter. So you go up the jetway. Uh, there was no, I take it, no offer at this point either to put you in touch with a, a CRO. Um, well, here, here's the clincher. It turns out the manager slash supervisor, whatever he was, who didn't identify himself to me until I asked him who he was, turns out to have been the CRO. And he didn't identify himself as such. That's correct. And I guess he preferred his role as bouncer to his role as CRO. So it didn't sound like he had any sort of desire to understand that there may have been a violation of the Act and a violation of your legal rights as a person with a disability. No desire whatsoever. So they rebooked you on another flight, which was a United flight, and it did not depart Reagan National. You had to go to another airport. Did they reimburse you for the, I think it was an $80 cab fare involved in changing airports? Absolutely not. Even at this point then, you have made contact with American, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. They haven't mm -hmm. even offered to reimburse the cab fare? They have not. 
So you obviously have been deeply scarred by this. Uh, it's understandable that when you've been through trauma like this, anybody would be reluctant to get back on a plane. How has it affected you subsequently? The entire time I was in San Diego, the nightmares started, you know, waking up, dreaming about the experience in a cold sweat. The entire time I was out there, I was literally terrified about flying home with American Airlines. Terrified. Because if they can throw a blind woman off a flight, what else can they do? Can they put me in jail? I don't know. I didn't know, and therefore, I was terrified about the flight home. Not surprisingly then, you've contacted American Airlines. I understand you've also been in touch with the Department of Transportation and filed a complaint there. What sort of response have you received from American to date? The first person from American who called began the conversation by saying, American Airlines has investigated your complaint and has determined um, that the crew acted appropriately in all man- in, in all respects. And so then what happened? I had to relive the whole trauma, the whole traumatizing experience with him in order to convince him that I wasn't making it up, that I wasn't lying, that I was telling the truth, and that they really had broken the law. Do you know if they've taken the time to speak with other passengers on the aircraft who would be able to verify your version of events? I have no way of knowing that. They have gone silent. So that was the first contact you had, and after they essentially said, look, we've done everything right, we're, we're, we're perfect in this incident, and you came back with your explanation, your recount, like you've just given to me. What mm-hmm. happened then? Um, I got another email from the same person who thanked me for having the conversation with him, said something very vague about American Airlines has internal policies for dealing with improper behavior on the part of its personnel and the airlines will be following those internal procedures. So that's tantamount to an admission of guilt, right? Of something. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and interestingly, I'm going to read a statement because uh, we, we obviously contacted American. We wanted to talk to them. Uh, And I have a statement from them, which I will read at the end of our discussion. But uh, the very first sentence says that they apologize to you for the experience that you've received. That, again, sounds like they are no longer disputing your version of events. Well, frankly, Jonathan, I would like a little bit more than an apology from two individuals who work for American Airlines. That's inadequate for me. What is it that you're seeking? It's really very simple. (laughs) I'm seeking an apology from American Airlines, not just behind the scenes, on the phone, from two individuals. I'm seeking substantive proof that American personnel will be trained in compliance with the Air Carrier Access Act and trained to not treat customers in a rude, arrogant manner and not to lie to customers. And I want my $80 back. I know that there have been some who have called for a boycott of American Airlines over this. And I suppose part of me says, yeah. And another part (laughs) of me says, but that lets them off the hook. I wonder whether some of these airlines would be only too happy 
not to have to transport blind passengers? I think you're absolutely right. I think there are plenty of airlines that would love to see us just go away. The blind side continues in just a moment, but first, I want to tell you about a product that Bonnie and I discovered that has really changed our lives, and I think it'll change yours as well. You know, the internet was meant to be without borders or limits, but some companies put geoblocks in place. They can prevent you from catching that sports event you really want to follow, like the Super Bowl, which was not possible to watch online here in New Zealand, or enjoying an audio-described version of that popular TV show that's so difficult to follow without it. There is a way around this stuff. Bonnie and I use and recommend HMA. Using HMA's technology on your smartphone or computer, you can virtually transport yourself to almost any country in the world so that to computers in that country, you look just like you were a local. We love the freedom it gives us to watch audio-described TV that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. And you can have that freedom too. And you can have it today by visiting mosin.org HMA. That's mosin.org slash HMA. Tear down the wall with HMA VPN. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosin. Naturally, The Blind Side reached out to American Airlines for comment. We wanted to know whether they disputed any of Sue Martin's allegations. If so, what was their version of events? And if not, what would they do to ensure that standards improved? We had some difficulty finding anybody from American Airlines because despite calling their media team during their advertised business hours, we kept getting an answer phone telling us we'd reached them after hours. Finally, with additional assistance from someone at Reagan National, we found an email contact and did manage to establish some communications with them. They declined an interview, but they issued the following statement, which I will read you in full without further comment. We apologise to Ms Martin for the recent experience she had on American Airlines. We take these allegations very seriously and are thoroughly investigating. We are also in contact with Ms. Martin to gather further additional details of what transpired during her recent journey with us. Service animals are welcome on all of our flights. American is also a proud supporter of the Puppies in Flight PIF program. In conjunction with Assistance Dogs International, ADI, Our team members volunteer to become trained to work with assistance dogs and take them on transports and test flights, short turnaround trips. This helps acclimate service animals to air travel. Somebody who was willing to talk with us is Penny Reader. Penny is, of course, a guide dog handler herself, and she's currently president of Guide Dog Users Incorporated. That's the American Council of the Blind's guide dog affiliate. Welcome to The Blind Side, Penny, and I'd like to start just by getting your reaction to the events that Sue Martin has recounted. You know, I read it with incredulity. I mean, I just, as I kept reading, I couldn't believe how much worse it was getting. And I actually, I know Sue because I'm a contractor. I work for the federal government and I work for the VA, which is the agency that Sue is a federal employee of. So... I knew Sue as this very capable, together person. You know, some people can get taken advantage of, but I would never have thought that Sue could be brought to tears by by anyone in an airline. And they just treated her horrifically. I wonder if I could talk about this business with you first of bulkhead seats, because it seems to me that a lot of airlines are under the misapprehension that there's some sort of regulation somewhere that says that all guide dog users have to be seated in a bulkhead seat. Now, some guide dog users want to be in a bulkhead seat, and like any customer, that's absolutely their right to request whatever seat suits them best. But there is no such requirement, right? There is no rule. There is no such requirement. Not only did they tell her she had to sit in the bulkhead, which was too small for her dog. It was one of those really tiny, narrow bulkheads, and she couldn't get the dog under the seat. Not only did they tell her that she had to sit there, but they even told her that dogs were not allowed in first class when she offered to buy a first class seat. Uh, so um, it, it's, it's just unconscionable the way they treated her. And they were just making up the rules on the fly. Yeah, airlines often say it's a regulation. And frankly, they say it to shut you up when there, 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 there are no such regulations in many instances that they cite. 
There are no such regulations about where you can sit in a plane. That's very true. Sometimes they'll tell guide dog users, uh, like a couple, if there's a couple and they, they each have a dog, sometimes they'll tell them that they can't sit together in the same row with their dogs, even though their dogs live together. Uh, it's just they just make up the rules for arbitrary reasons. So why does That's it keep exactly happening? I mean, is there some sort of systemic failure in advocacy here that we hear so many stories where the dignity of blind passengers is constantly being violated in multiple ways. Why does it keep happening when there are such strong consumer organizations in the United States? I don't know. Last year, the DOT, the Department of Transportation, under which the Air Carrier Access Act is uh, administered, um, set about to do what they call a reg-neg process, regulations negotiation, and say they convened a big committee and there were representatives from the government, from DOT. There were advocates like GDUI and several of the guide dog schools. And there were representatives from the airlines. And we all met together for several months to talk about how to solve some of these problems. And at the very end of the process, which began in May and was scheduled to conclude in October, negotiations completely fell apart. And no regulations were arrived at because the airlines decided that um, service animal users need to bring and show a medical ID every time they board a plane. And the advocates disagreed with that. And so the whole thing fell apart. But we had been making great progress until that very moment. We had reached agreement on what constitutes a service animal and how emotional uh, support animals should be supported and, um, you know, cared for on the planes. And we reached all kinds of agreements. And it was so disappointing that this fell apart. Now, apparently, the DOT is going to release a notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, they told us within several months. I don't know how soon. Um, and I don't know how draconian the new regulations that they're going to propose are going to be. But uh, it was very disappointing because I really felt like we had made a lot of progress. There were lots of people with disabilities represented on those calls. There were people on the autism spectrum. There were people with mobility disabilities. There were blind people and deaf people and people with cognitive impairments and people with psychiatric disabilities. And we were all agreeing, but it all fell apart at the end. What was the logic that the airlines offered for saying that there should be some ID requirement there? The logic was that there were so many people that carry fake IDs and they just can't tell the difference between an emotional support animal and a guide dog or a service dog. And the only thing that they're willing to trust would be a medical authority, which, of course, you know, the fake IDs are all signed by fake medical authorities. So I don't know what the logic is. (laughs) This is another fascinating element of Sue's story, by the way, that they seemed to think that her dog was an emotional support animal because apparently she doesn't look blind. Is that because she's such yeah. a successful blind person, I guess? Well, the, the I mean, I know that some people with congenital conditions, for example, clearly have you know visual elements about the way their eyes look that, that make them look more blind than some other people do. But the interesting thing is I've looked this up in the Air Carriers Act. All that is required is self identification. So it doesn't matter a damn what they think about uh, whether she looks blind or not. If she has identified herself as a blind person, that is the beginning and end of the matter. That's it. All they need to know is what the dog does to ameliorate ameliorate her disability. Right. That's the only question they can really ask her. So this emotional support animal business though, and I don't want yeah, I guess there's a danger that different disability groups could be pitted against one another, and that's an easy game for airlines and others in to the, play. In the whole process of uh, that we were, that we were involved in over the year, it didn't happen. I think most of us, I don't think any of us would de- deny anyone uh, emotional support. You don't um, think there's want- a danger of trivialising the the legitimate needs of 
people who really genuinely cannot function as well without a service animal by allowing these emotional support animals on aircraft along with giving them the same status as, say, a guide dog, which is an essential mobility tool? I think they're essential in different ways. I have no problem with an emotional support animal if the animal's under control and it's not bothering my dog. I truly don't. I, I know there are people who do, but... You know, I've known people that are very anxious and very fearful. And and if all it takes is to have their kitten in a carrier to make them feel better and they keep the carrier on the floor, it's okay with me. So um, I think the issue is behavior. The whole issue is animal behavior. The problem with emotional support animals is that often they are pets and they've never left home. They've never been to an airport. They've never gotten on an airplane. And they are terrified and they um, also... Uh, the person doesn't know how to control them, that's when problems happen. So as long as they're controlled, I have no problem with them. Isn't that I, and the I don't thing? think we're going to do anything about them. We're not going to get that taken away. I, I just don't think, I don't see it happening. I think too many people feel that they need them. And um, I mean, I would love to have emotional support animals have to have some degree of training, but I don't think it's going to happen. So yeah, it's not, an, I, it's not an unreasonable request, is it? Because when you consider there's the International Federation of Guide Dog Organizations and they have a series of very rigorous standards and those schools are tested very regularly uh, to ensure that they adhere to those standards. When you call your dog a guide dog and it's certified by one of those schools, it has been through rigorous training and maintenance and to um, to to give these other animals including monkeys and cats and goodness knows what else the same status as guide dogs don't you have to have some empathy for the airlines in that situation when when it can turn into a menagerie on the plane with really uh, badly do. trained I animals <laughs> you know I, I don't i don't, i'm glad i wasn't on the plane where there was a turkey um and and i agree um when we when we got went through this process that I talked about last year, we really defined emotional support animals as dogs, cats, and rabbits. Uh, people who are mobility impaired, especially people who have dexterity issues, sometimes use capuchin monkeys. Uh, but those monkeys are always, always caged, always, and they are never taken out on the plane. And so I don't have a problem with that either. So if someone, and really the only place you can use those animals is in your home. But if you're moving from one residence to another, you very well might need to fly and you might need to take the monkeys with you. But those are not emotional support animals. They really do perform an essential function for people and they really are contained. So um, I don't think that's an issue. So you don't think that organizations like GDUI are selling blind people short by not taking a very aggressive, non-compromising stance on these other animals that are causing these issues? No, my, my aggressive stance is that those animals have to be contained and well-behaved and under control. If they're not well-behaved, then they can be kicked off the plane, as can my guide dog. If my dog starts barking and growling and creating a scene, the airline is perfectly within the, their rights to remove my dog from the plane. And, and that's how it should be for all these animals, I think. If they're contained and they're well-behaved or they're controlled, I think that's fine. You know, if the Dalai Lama was traveling with a guide dog, maybe he might have been able to handle the situation with absolute zen and serenity that Sue Martin went through. But I, I do want to talk about reacting to a situation that you find yourself in when an airline crew is being absolutely inappropriate in the way that this airline crew clearly was and violating Sue Martin's rights in, in a horrible way. Now, whenever you get a complaint like this, and I've seen this happen, I've seen it roll out on social media, you do get a bit of Victim blaming. It's another version of, well, they were wearing a short skirt argument. You know what I mean? That, that yeah. Somehow somehow <laughs> the victim is to blame because maybe they did get a bit emotional and things like that when repeatedly they were subjected to a series of violations of federal law. How do you suggest, do you have any tips for people in terms of handling this? 
I wish I did. I, I always feel like I know what I'm going to do. And then when the situation arises, I sometimes get very upset. Mm. I think, you know, it's, it's important to just try to be as calm as you can and, um, to try to keep your voice even. Uh, but to stand up for yourself, you know, they were bullying Sue. That's, that's the only word for it, for it. And I've been on planes where I was treated the same way. One time I was on a plane and I was a U.S. Air flight and my dog is pretty long and her paw kept wandering over toward the aisle. It was not in the aisle, but they were really, really rude to me. And, um, and you know, I was, I was afraid that they would make me leave, you know, because I, Willow was not about to move her foot in anymore. Um, so, um, I always think I know how I'm going to behave, but you know, I don't think you ever really know. When you get into that situation, I think role playing is really a good thing to do. And we try to do that in GDY. And I know they do it at local meetings as well. Um, and we would like to maybe put some role plays up on our website. We're working on that. So um, just to kind of give people a chance to practice. Sometimes does quoting the federal law chapter and verse help at all? I mean, if you're on an aircraft and you can confidently say you are not right about the fact that there's a regulation that my dog must sit in this bulkhead seat and you're certainly not right that I'm not allowed to sit in first class and you are in violation of section whatever it is of the Air right. Carriers Act, does that help? That would help. And another thing that would have helped, and I don't know if Sue did this, is there's every airline is supposed to have someone on site who intervenes in these situations where someone feels that their disability civil rights are being violated. And that's the person that the TSA and the airlines tell you you're supposed to call. You're supposed to insist when the problem arises that the airline contact that agent um, who should be on site who can handle the situation. How are complaints usually handled, do you think, by the respective airlines? I mean, I'm sure that there is a complaint that has been lodged in this situation. Do they generally get resolved satisfactorily, discipline reaction taken, retraining? According to, um, according to the disability rights uh, group that spoke to the ACB legislative seminar, they usually come once a year and give us statistics. And the statistics look good. The statistics indicate that those complaints are handled and that they are researched. And they do, they do fine airlines for big violations. You, you read that every once in a while. One of the airlines had, had a, a fine last year of over a million dollars for violating civil rights of people with disabilities. I don't know how quickly they're handled. They're supposed to be handled within 60 days, I believe. But, you know, all I can tell you is what they told us, which is that they're working on it and they're doing a good job. I suppose that's good if there is appropriate remedial or disciplinary action that is taken. But, of course, it doesn't change the sense of humiliation and anger no. and, of course, the inconvenience if you've got chucked, chucked off a plane. So you'd hope that these things would stop happening in the first place, wouldn't you? Instead of, And they seem to be escalating rather than stopping happening. I agree with you. I mean, poor Sue was going to a conference where she was she was slated to give a presentation. I don't even know how she managed when she finally got there. And she said the whole time she was there, she worried about the return flight. And she's still worried about flying now because she doesn't always fly with her husband. A lot of times she flies for work and she's all by herself. Suppose they had bumped her off the plane at National Airport. She didn't know where she was. She had no food for her dog. No, nothing. It would have been terrible. I wonder if you collect any data about whether particular airlines are a worse offender than another airline. We do not have that data, but it would be very interesting to collect it. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a really good core function of a consumer organization to uh, hand out bouquets and brick bats and say, okay, this particular <laughs> airline is atrocious and really hold their feet to the fire on this on an annual basis. Maybe, you know, publish a, a hall of shame, as it were. It's a good idea. I think it's a great idea. I'll, t I'll bring it back to GDY, see what we can do. I know that Southwest has a very good reputation generally. 
Yeah, and they never used to, did they? I mean, I think there was a real battle for a while, quite some time ago now, with uh, with, with Southwest, and then they seem to have really come right. And they in figured a, it out. They turned it around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it is. It is possible. Um, it, it only takes probably one leader somewhere to really say, "Look, we've got to clean up our act." And, and maybe things can can change. One of the things that, that comes up whenever this um, discussion occurs, particularly in the United States, is there is what I would call um, an NFB school of thought on uh, airline travel, which is that actually um, meet and assist is not the most efficient way to work with an airport and that you... Uh, should not need to indicate oh, to the airline that you require assistance and that you can use the discovery method. And, you know, that does work for a lot of blind people. It doesn't work anymore for somebody like me because I have a hearing impairment and it's much harder now for me to use techniques like echolocation that would once have allowed me to navigate unfamiliar right. airports. So I think we need to be mindful that people have a very wide range of needs and possibly other disab- other disabilities besides uh, vision, but wh- what's your view on how much do you disclose before you turn up to the airport? How much should you disclose? Well, in the in this instance of our reg- regulation negotiations, we had all come to the agreement, all the advocates, that it would be okay for the airlines to ask us to disclose that we had a service animal before we got on the plane. 12, at least 12 hours in advance. Um, that's what they wanted, and that's what we thought would satisfy them. So I had no problem with it, but I will tell you that the NFB representative in those meetings was very skeptical of that requirement and did not believe it was necessary. However, he wasn't even a dog user, so I don't know how much credibility he got. I think we all have different skill levels, and you know, I don't think it's good to shame people because they need help. I suppose in the end, we're all customers, aren't we? And we have the right to the services that we feel we need, just like any other customer. That's right. You know, and someone who's sending an elderly parent on a on a flight, for instance, would um, would worry about that person if they didn't think that person could get help in between flights. Um, so, you know, as I said, we all have different different abilities and different skills. We all do the best we can and we all have good days and bad days. And uh, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think it's okay to disclose to the airlines that I have a dog in advance. When I buy a ticket, I do that um, because I'm hopeful then that <laughs> they'll let me sit where I want to sit and they'll be prepared for my dog and they won't freak out when they see a German shepherd standing in line. So in closing, what do you think would be a satisfactory conclusion to Sue's issue? Um, An enormous apology, maybe some compensation for suffering and pain and terror. And uh, certainly, um, I think that the airlines could all use some training on... uh, And I want that... So could the TSA, all of them, they could all use some... Some training, and that's what I want them to do. They're not training their employees, and they're obviously they don't have standardized rules where pe- that their employees can look at, and that's why they tend to make up the rules as they go along. I think that has to be changed. Um, I think everyone needs to be on the same page. These are our civil rights. These are the things that, as an airline, I can reasonably expect of you and your service animal. And we all need to agree on these standards and then try to get along. And I think that should definitely happen in the case of what happened to Sue. They should be ashamed and they they really should and they should make changes quickly. Guide Dog Users Incorporated President Penny Reader. A reminder, I'd love to get your views on these issues and your experiences that you've had with airline travel over the years. You can drop me an email to theblindside at mosin.org, either in text or audio format. And don't forget, we're live on Mushroom FM on this very topic this coming Thursday night at 9pm Eastern Time. And you can call in and be part of the discussion on this topic. For more details, visit mushroomfm.com slash cuppa. That's mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.